That was weird. What was going on? I don't know. I just muted it, unmuted it, pretended like I was going to pick a new one, and it worked. So there was no striking involved. There was no beating on the computer. No, I did not strike the computer or anything. Your desk, none of it. Nothing. Hi, I'm George Tekmachop here with Steve the Gat Anderson for Easton Podcast 178. And for those of you wondering what happened to 176, well, Apple kind of screwed up our database. So there is no 176. We jumped from 175 to 177. Don't ask me why. Someday maybe it'll get fixed, but maybe not. But now I everything 176 lines up. was a great podcast, had a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, it could have been one of those legendary podcasts that disappeared into the ether because, you know, we did a, a banging podcast and then found out that we didn't, I didn't record it properly or something went wrong. You know, that's happened, what, three times maybe? Uh, one of our best ones, we forgot to push record on. Yeah. And that was, that was honestly lost for the ages and, and tragic in a way. That one was the best one we've ever done, probably. I don't remember anything about it. We attempted to do our best to recreate it, but it's just not the same when it's not organic. Yeah, agreed, 100%. And yeah, we just lost it. And it was just like devastating because it was it was actually good. And I, I actually mean it. <laughs> it really was. So what are you going to do? Hey, you're back from Arizona Cup. Yeah, Arizona Cup was last weekend. This weekend, there's a big event happening in Italia, Turkey, which is kind of warm up for the World Cup that's coming up. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But uh, let's talk about Arizona Cup for just a bit. Uh, big turnout, huh? A lot of people at Arizona Cup uh, and 100 people on the wait list, is my understanding. Yeah, they could have accommodated if they could have had the space, which they did not. But if they did, they could have had more than 800 people, which is a pretty banging turnout for an outdoor event in the United States. You can't turn people away. We've got to have venues that are capable. Other venues, Buckeye, all this, I mean, we, they go on for miles, literally soccer fields for like a mile. Yeah. You could the, fit a billion people there shooting. Yeah, I agree with you. Cup, that, that venue is, it's served its purpose and it's at capacity and it's time to find a new one. Well, while I don't disagree with you, it seems that the organizers of the event are um, very much tied to keeping it where it is right now. That's my understanding from third parties who are somewhat involved. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. You know, there's there's certainly demand. Uh, people want it. I think even if they charged a little more to be able to accommodate a different venue, then they'd still see that kind of turnout. Because at the end of the day, what is it? 120 bucks now? Something like that? 195. Oh, it's more than it used to be. Well, there you go. It um, still, let's say it was 210. How much difference would that really make? Yeah, no one's going to think about it. Yeah. Here's the thing. So, our, our sport is always clamoring for growth and you've got the opportunity to do it. You have to take it. You cannot continue to hold events at venues that are too small. Yeah. That's like you, that is, there's, I don't get how any of that's even up for dispute. How's the traffic getting in and out? It was pretty interesting. Lady in a Prius almost hit me. Really? Well, she almost drove under my vehicle. Yeah. So she, you know, that little 
90 degree turn going into the like right at you you get off the paved road and then there's a quick 90 degree turn into the parking lot yes yes there's a tree right there and i guess she decided she was from london and that her prius would handle it well and she just took the left lane like she took the left lane my lane straight into oncoming and last second she's like oh whoops no courtesy wave of course not and i'm gonna tell you i saw i saw a target quiver in the back seat of her car so hey, am i surprised am i surprised that she was inconsiderate driver and didn't even give a courtesy wave no not when i saw that quiver i think it's more related to the fact that she drives a prius personally <laughs> hey, that's a toyota that's your kind of car well but that's not a sporting Toyota. I actually think Priuses are sweet. I'm big on the Prius, Hyundai Ionic. When Hyundai was at Salt Lake World Cup, they had an Ionic there. It was new that year. And it's Hyundai's version of a Prius, like 59 MPGs, right? Yeah, Tom Dillon drives one. They're sweet. I want one. They are a tall man vehicle. Tom Dillon can fit in it. I can fit in it. I want one of those. Well, there you go. Our friend I've Thomas Hahn. I've heard the new Prius is good for tall people as well. So I don't know. this lady was not a new one. It was a non-tall person's Prius, which doesn't surprise me. Uh-huh. So the combination of Target Quiver and Prius, I, I think, you know, don't have to be from London, though, to drive like a, <laughs> like a silly person driving a Prius from what I have personally seen. No, the London comment had nothing to do with the quality of driving. It just... More the location of the driver. It was a side of the road thing. I got that. But my point is that I've never yet seen a Prius driver that I considered to be safe and competent. Except for when I'm behind the wheel of a Prius. But that's just me. (laughs) Something like 85% of people rate themselves as very good drivers. I'll tell you what, though. I was very impressed with the Prius that I rented one time in Torino, Italy. Yeah? Yeah. I was doing about 90 minutes a day in city traffic getting from my hotel to the venue where the European championships were being uh, done. I was uh, announcing at that event. And that Prius got through that entire week with seven liters of fuel in city driving, in Italian city driving, which means you're, you're not exactly sitting at the light. Right. Huh. It's very interesting. I they are nice impressed. vehicles. I'm, I was very impressed. Yeah. Someone shouldn't, take my comments as a slight towards Priuses. They should take it as a slight towards target quiver users. I still think Priuses should deserve a certain amount of slight. (laughs) I will say this though. I do like the idea of a car that has both electric and gas backup. I remember one time I was in Kyoto and I rented a Nissan Leaf. You want to talk about range anxiety, you know, in a place where you can't read half the signs. I can't anyway. That's not fun. And one of the, one of the engineers recently purchased a Leaf and they don't have the best electric range, right? They're like 50 miles or so. That's kind of my point. Yeah. And he, he basically said, yeah, I drive it to work. I charge it up here. I drive it home. He said he can get it. If he's full charge, he can get it from home to work and back. So he doesn't need to charge it here. But we have two charging stations. So, yeah, you know, I've eyeballed some of the, the other vehicles like the well, the Ionic plug-in hybrid, some advantages to that. That's a heck of an archery vehicle. 
not necessarily for long road trips is it great like you don't get the advantage of the plug-in hybrid but you know there is a tax credit with that so there's that but uh you still are getting 50 plus mpgs and you have like a 30 mile electric range so you do have some all electric capability with typical ICE motor backup. Well, just to go back to Tom Dillon's example, I mean, he and his uh, wife, Natalie, they go everywhere with their gear. And uh, sometimes it's compound gear. Sometimes it's recurve gear. And it all seems to fit in their car with no problem. Natalie, Natalie packs a lot of gear. She always brings extra stuff. You know, she got to have someone on the team who has extra stuff. Yeah. So, you know, that, that seems like an ideal car for archery, which kind of makes sense. Think about it. Hyundai is Korea's biggest archery sponsor. And they yeah. make a car that's good for archery. I think Hyundai should sponsor our show and maybe sponsor it with a nice lease. You know, we take advantage <laughs> of a nice lease opportunity. I'm sure there's some, someone from Hyundai listening. And I've already sung my praise for the Ionic and the Ionic plug-in hybrid. So would be happy to jump behind the wheel of one of those at a nice lease opportunity. Well, you know, next month we'll be in Korea. Maybe there will be an opportunity to meet somebody from Hyundai. Yeah, we might be in Korea. We'll see about that. There's, <laughs> we, we got an email today about that. So, oh. yeah, well, maybe we'll talk we about intend that. We to be in Korea. Uh-huh. Well, we can talk about it offline. Sure. In the meantime, this weekend, big event going on in Antalya, Turkey, the Spring Arrows, which uh, is kind of a warm-up for at least for the top European teams that are going to be in Antalya. Um, I know you're not going to be in Antalya, but we are going to have a full recurve team there. And uh, a number of our contenders will be there, but they're not at this Spring Arrows event. But we are going to see Metagazos this weekend in Turkey, as well as the rest of the new Turkish recurve team for 2022. Germany has sent a dozen archers there. Uh, Indoor World Series champion Felix Weiser and uh, Florian Unruh, the uh, Olympic team bronze medalist Michelle Kropen is there. Nicholas Demore is uh, making the trip as well. So it's going to be an interesting event. That's the Spring Arrows Karaman Bagatir tournament uh, in honor of the great Turkish administrator Karaman Bagatir, a guy who was instrumental in Turkish archery for many years. And uh, it's a world ranking event. So that's taking place this weekend in Antalya. So I assume they shoot that, then they hang out in Antalya for a week doing a little training camp there, and then they shoot World Cup, correct? I know I would if I were doing that. I would imagine the Germans are planning the same thing, and some of these other teams are as well. It's actually a very good choice. That'll be a cool time, provided you're in a nice hotel. <laughs> yeah, and, and most of the hotels in it, in Antalya are pretty decent, um, but there's that place where a lot of the Eastern European teams like to stay that's uh, not quite as great. <laughs> you know, But it's much more, um, shall we say, economical. We shall say that. Yeah. We've got some new rules for World Cup, and I think you're going to be happy at about at least one of these. Uh, one of them being the fact that finally the top eight buy is going away, which that I think is great. Dumb. Um, well, not dumb, but it is going away, and that's good. And then – now the top eight it gets a bonus point or something like that. Is that correct? 
Yeah, you're you're pretty close to right there. Uh, for a long time now, um, the top eight would get a protected buy through the through the last thirty two through the third round of the eliminations bracket. Yeah, the problem. Why. Yeah, the problem. Yeah, the problem is that you you come out cold, as we've talked about several times before, and so your low qualifier who made it through the matches, they've got a, at least a psychological advantage, if not a physical one, probably a physical one too. So, you know, the, the intent was always to make sure that that didn't happen till another day, but you know, somewhere along the line, things kind of got blurry. So buys are gone. And instead, like you alluded to the people who make it to the top eight are going to get bonus points instead. And those bonus points will actually count toward the world cup ranking separate from the results at each stage. So if you get a number one seed, eight bonus points, second seed, seven, and so on. Um, and you get 25 points from a stage win. So that can be a, a serious bonus. If you win the stage and you qualify number one, you're looking at a substantial 33 points. And that's uh, nothing to sneeze at. I think that that's a, uh, a very interesting and good idea. On the other Well, it makes qualification count, you know, and that's always been one of the downsides of the world cup is that you go and shoot these qualification scores. Someone can shoot a rip in qualification score. Someone else can shoot a poor one. And then you get stuck with a very tough match early on. I remember Roger Willett when he won like every event the one year. Yeah. It was multiple times. He qualified like 30th. I remember one time he qualified 32nd, which means second round he's shooting against the number one seed and right. he beat him, you know, and that's yeah. just, that sucks if you're that number one seed guy. So at least now you get to go home with a little bit of something, a little bit of points. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you uh, say you play somewhere in the top eight, uh, you know, you get that bonus, you could actually, in theory, end up uh, ahead of the game compared to some other people. So, you know, there's no doubt that that is going to be a nice change. One of the things that is a little tough, though, is that there's going to be a cut now to 64. There's going to be fewer people advancing to match play. Uh, any category that has less than 104 shooters at the final deadline for entry will be cut to 64 after qualification. So that's um, spectator status for anybody seated 65 and lower, done. Any category in which there's more than 104 archers, cut will be 128. Not a huge deal, not a huge change, but one that will have an impact on those lower qualifying shooters. It's going to affect men's recurve, and that's about it. Um, given the turnouts, yeah, I'd say you're probably right. The other thing they've done is they've standardized the schedule. So um, every event will be a Tuesday through Sunday event, and you are going to have practice Tuesday morning of any event, qualify, qualification for compound in the afternoon on day one. On the second day, which will be a Wednesday, team eliminations for compound, and then the afternoon will be recurve qualification. Thursdays, the third day, is always going to be recurve team eliminations in the morning, compound eliminations in the afternoon. So Thursday's a elimination day. Friday, mixed team eliminations in the morning. Afternoons, always recurve eliminations. Compound Saturday will be compound Saturday. Sunday, recurve Sunday will be recurve Sunday. So that's uh, pretty much what we've had all along. But those other things, that is now consistent. It's going to be consistent for everything on the circuit. Qualifying split over two days, one for recurve, one for compound. Your final four, which uh, we saw introduced last season, has the semifinals in the arena, comes back for 2022. And then there's one more thing, Steve. 
and you know about this, you got to have two uniforms with contrasting colors. Yeah, well, that's uh, just for, sorry, uh, stumbling over words. It's for teammates. Correct, that is for the uh, teammates competing against each other so that I yeah. guess people can tell them apart. Well, it's, it's also for teams, right, for team rounds. For example, let's say that you have uh, Team A and Team B and Team A and Team B have light-colored uniforms. One of those teams has to switch to dark-colored uniforms or contrasting colored uniforms. That's so the referees don't confuse who has the ball. Yeah, it's so that you can make it easier to follow on broadcast TV is the idea. So that's the, uh, yeah, I think it's a reasonable accommodation. I, I don't think that's a bad idea. The last part, the last change is an exciting one. It's a good one. And that is that you're going to have the potential to win more money at these events. The prize fund for 2022 will be about 31,000 US dollars for each stage, which is up uh, about 220% from 2019. And your final, the World Cup final, which will take place in Mexico this year, all the way in October, is up 40%. It's 202,000 Swiss francs, which is about um, $205,000 right now. If you're a circuit champion, you take home 28,000 Swiss francs, close to uh, $28,500. So that's uh, not a bad thing if you think about it. It's more yeah, money. Making than the final make. pays. It does pay. Absolutely. Well, making the final and podium at the final that pays. Otherwise, it doesn't pay. Yes. So you know, I mean, certainly they're dangling the carrot, but the carrot doesn't pay down too deep. And I don't know if it necessarily should, right? Right. It's nice when you're. It's nice when you're fourth, fifth place to get a little bit of something like you would at, say, an NFAA event or, or something like that. You know, Vegas, you, you get fourth or fifth. You're making a pretty pretty decent amount of money, all things considered, for archery. The USA Archery events, the World Cup events, all those, you know, you get fourth place and you get a congrats, thanks for coming which I'm not like, again, I'm not saying that's not how it should be. Everyone's going to do it their own way. And we all want to get paid more when we win. So that's one way to do it is to, you know, put more weight on the, the winning side. So world cup has a lot of media interest this year. There's going to be a lot of uh, events with spectators. I think it's going to be for the first time in a long time we're really going to feel like we're back in the sport. You know, we're going to have full crowds at some of these things. I think Paris is just going to be crazy, um, especially with the lead up to the Olympic games. But um, something that world archery does, or, you know, their, their media people do every year is they ask a certain number of people who are considered expert in the field to prognosticate about the season. Now I have no problem and, and I'm very honored to be asked to do that, but Steve, I can't imagine if any of my prognostications are even going to be close to correct, given what happens during the course of a normal year. You just can't really say, other than the obvious stuff, what is going to happen. But I wanted to chat with you about it a little bit and see if some of my predictions match up or pass the big cat smell test. Let's hear them. So when, when WA asked me for, you know, prognostication on this entire circuit for the year, I was like, are you serious? 
because I mean, you know, we're getting out of an unprecedented pandemic. We've got the economic strains that are going on right now. We've got the attack on Ukraine going on right now. And by the time people read whatever I have to say, I think we'll find out that UFO abductions have been a real thing all along or whatever, you know, I mean, or not, you know. But what we do know is we've got a full calendar, right? We've got the World Games. We've got the Asian Games. We've got the World Archery Field Championship and the World Cup. So I'm not making predictions about anything but the World Cup, you know. For the first time since 2019, we've got this full slate for the circuit. We got Turkey, we got Korea, we got Colombia, we got France, we got Mexico. But every country has not named their travel teams yet, right? Korea is doing that right now. Japan is doing it this weekend, figuring out who their travel teams are going to be. So coming up with who will emerge at the top of the podium right now is difficult in the context of do I even know if, say, Ann San is going to be on the travel team? Uh, probably, but, right. you know, we don't know. So you need a little bit of time to see final entry. Yeah. That Does would be Korea useful. have preliminary entries for no. Italia? Or no, not they going? do not. I, as far as I can tell, they're not going. So I don't know that for sure, but they're not listed right now. But, you know, we can, we can make some educated guesses here, I think. Meta, uh, meet. He's just going to win most of the events. Brady's going to win most of the other ones. I think without Brady... If Brady weren't in Antalya, Meta would be the lock, but Brady's going to be in Antalya. So, um, you know, you're looking at uh, Meta, you got Brady, you got Jack. Uh, but, you know, if you were talking about the big picture, the, the big circuit picture, um, you're looking at uh, Kim Woo-jin having an opportunity, you know, you're looking at, so many worthy contenders that it's it's really hard to say who's going to rise to the top. I you, you know, know how me, some people have the Olympic gold medal hangover. Yes, or that the letdown. Will, that will not be Meta. He'll have the springboard. Yes, agreed. And it won't be Ansan either. I don't think. You know, I don't think so either. Provided she makes the team. And if we talk about recurve women, and you look at if Korea participates after Antalya, obviously they're going to be shooting their own event but you know sometimes they go and sometimes they don't look for Ann San and look for Kang Che Young but look at Michelle Kroppen from Germany I, I I was impressed with her this past season and I think that she may end up with a, a pretty good podium step at the finals in Mexico if she keeps up that kind of performance so you know she's shooting Antalya I, I'll tell you right now I think you're going to see peak performance out of her in Antalya on the compound side, right? Who would have expected Nico from Austria, Nico Wiener, to win the world championship? Anybody? Maybe you. I don't know if he would have been expected to win. I had actually just been talking to someone about him about a week or two prior, and I said he's due to actually win an event. Yes, a, and we had that conversation. Yeah. We had that conversation when you and Chris and me did that podcast in Yankton. You were pointing out that you'd had that conversation he was not on my radar but he is now will he continue this trajectory he started in yankton who knows right matthias fullerton a young guy from denmark um lots of flashes of brilliance last year will he keep it up and then you got mike schlusser mike is like a force of nature right i mean he's very very consistent in my opinion and uh looking smooth right now so who knows what's going to happen there i'm going to predict that the old dogs hold the guard for the year. I, I don't think it's going to be 
the new young guys this year. I think they'll they'll do well. They'll do fine. I think you're going to see the seasoned guys do well in a full, yeah. full more normal competitive environment. I don't I'm disagree look with at you. Mike, I'm going to look at Martin Damsbo, Braden. Really? And you, you might even get a surprise from the U.S. right off the get-go at Mentalia. Uh, yeah. On the compound side. Yeah. Interesting. When we look at the compound women that are going to be um, competing, we've got Sarah Lopez, of course, the GOAT, and strong podium contender always. Tanya Galantine has been shooting really well, and she'll be there. Ella Gibson from GBR uh, has emerged as a youngster with a lot of talent, Steve. So she might possibly skew your result here. But we're not going to see Liko Arola, um, and we're not going to see Bodhi. Uh, at these events because of the way that our trials process takes place. And uh, so, you know, they're not on the senior teams and uh, don't think that uh, that gives the youth the opportunity to shine that they could have had if it were an open event and they were showing up for it. I think Lico could certainly surprise a few people. Outdoors is a much different game. Yeah, but she shot really well at Arizona Cup. She did. She would do fine. It's just a different game, right? Agreed. Yes. Uh, the games where it's a survive thing, you survive until the shoot off. Those are different games and it's different. It works well for a lot of people who then maybe don't translate. They're still very good at an outdoor head to head type game, but they, they are not able to dominate as easily. So I, I think uh, if you put Lico out there, she would do just fine. It's just, it's so hard to consistently have success in any of the head-to-head matchup archery games. Yeah, your, your point is well made, and I think you're right. But I also think that past performance can be an indicator of future potential, and we're looking at some great future potential, particularly from Bodie and from Lico. So. You know, yeah, you're right. The hardest you're right. Part, it's a different part game. About but... that. Right now, the hardest part about them doing well in the World Cup is making the U.S. team. Yes, so exactly. Once that. they can do that, they can do well in the in the World Cup. There's no doubt about that. Hundred percent agree. Bodie, Bodie will be fine. He's just it's just both of those, both Bodie and Lico, they're both going to be really good. They're just shooting as juniors right now, right? So they aren't even going to be if they continue to shoot as juniors, they won't be eligible for Correct. world cup now if they go and attempt to get a senior usat ranking i fully expect both of them to contend for the team it's always harder on the men's side historically in the u.s always has been to make that team and i think right now it's actually deeper than ever and you have guys coming back to shoot who haven't in the past and it's going to be very difficult to make uh, a u.s team going forward for anybody we've seen a lot of the same people over the last 10 years or so. And a lot of those people you may never see again at a 50 meter event. Here's my compound men predictions. The old guard does well. Mike, Braden, Martin Damsbo, Stefan, if he shoots some, uh, probably going to get one of the Turkish archers will probably do very well. And forgive me for not remembering his name. You'll see 
some of the Indian archers doing well, you know, I fully expect Abshek will be very competitive as he always Agreed. is. Yeah, it's, the Indian compound team seems to be in much better shape than the recurve team these days. You know, that's interesting because it felt like their recurve team had a pretty good year last year. Yeah, just but then never quite got over the hump to get into medal matches, you know, everywhere. I guess Deepika made a few medal matches, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, but they took Deepika off the team along with Atanu, her husband. <laughs> well, I, I, did they not make the team or did they take them off the team? I don't know the exact circumstances. Yeah. The way it was phrased could be interpreted either way. You know, what's interesting is these, some of these other countries, I don't know their selection process, but I know some of them do, they don't, they don't qualify a team, right? They don't have a ranking system mm -hmm. where the archers shoot for it. They pick the team. And yes, that's true. They don't have the amateur sports act in, in most countries, right? Like we have. Yeah. Here. It's nice in the U S to be able to earn your spot and not have it taken away from you. For sure. It eliminates the question of things like politics and uh, other factors that are non-objective. And I think that it keeps things a little more pure here. Potentially. Potentially. Anyway, the book's well, coming I along. Look, I look forward to your write-up. Yeah. Well, it's not just I mine. That your deadline is favorable so that you can actually know who is competing. Thank you. The corporate book is coming along swimmingly. Have you seen any drafts? I have not. I the thing's gorgeous. Email. It's really nice. I need to. Uh, I need to look through it again. Well, so this thing's about. It's going to work out to be. Uh, it's a square format that they've selected for it, and it's about an inch and a quarter thick. And the paper they've selected is gorgeous and it is well written and um we're putting the finishing touches on it in the next few weeks and i'm i'm just impressed with the uh the effort so far so the easton book the 100 year anniversary book is moving along and looking really good the 100 year tesla vehicle is moving along too did you see that thing yeah i saw some of the early concepts and and I saw a photo along, you know, I think it was Randy Sheck who used to work at Easton a long time ago, right? Yeah, yeah. He was in charge of marketing back in the day. Yeah. He happened to like be behind it on the road, like the second it pulled out of the wrapped shop. Yeah. So it got wrapped. They left with it and he was boom right there. And, you know, someone who knows Easton, well, he took a photo and sent it to Gary and Gary showed me. So that was when I first saw it. And then your photos showed it in much more detail. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I got, I convinced Greg that we ought to do a photo session up in Big Cottonwood Canyon. So Monday, we're going to go up in Big Cottonwood Canyon and do a little photo session. And I'll throw some of those up on the Eastern Target Facebook so people can see it. I think there was another photo session going to be taking place in Skull Valley. Oh, yeah. Or out at the Salt Flats. So yeah, that, yeah, people, <laughs> I don't know. People are very excited about the vehicle. I'll tell you, the thing is really compelling. People love it. So if you don't know what we're talking about, um, stay tuned next week on Easton Target's Facebook page, Easton Target Archery Facebook. I'll make sure we have some images of that. Uh, it's actually Jim Easton's Tesla Roadster from 2008. 
and Greg has had it done up like an archery target. It's really cool. It does look pretty cool. I, I didn't realize it was from that long ago. Yeah, it's one of the original roadsters. I think personally what Greg did with it is much better than what Elon Musk did with his. Didn't Elon shoot his to the Mars? Yes, exactly. Elon shot his into the orbit of Mars. To the Mars. <laughs> nobody, nobody gets to see that one. <laughs> That's pretty, yeah, Elon, owner of Twitter. Yes, Elon, the owner of Twitter. You know, Twitter is, a, as you know, a toxic cesspool, a flaming ball of suck and hate. But it might actually be worth checking out once Elon has had some influence over the way things are conducted there. I think it'll be interesting. I use Twitter for any sort of breaking news or following a sporting event such as golf. It's really good for following golf since golf happens slow enough that they can write about it, you know, each shot basically and tweet it. There used yeah. to be an account called Tiger Tracker that specifically tweeted everything Tiger Woods did. Well, is it, it back was, up and running now that Tiger's back out there? I don't think it is. Not the original one. It was a account owned by either Golf Channel or Golf Digest or something like that. But they don't have it. I know they shut it down just prior to his most recent injury. So anyhow, I do like Twitter for certain things like and, and Formula One. You know, I like the Formula One commentary on there sure. from the actual pundits. But man, if you click on the tweet and start reading people's re uh, replies, that's when it's just it's just the worst place in the entire world. The amount of toxicity it, exhibited in yeah. social media is just stunning to me sometimes. It's really, really... Get your information and get out. That's how yeah. I treat Twitter. I think that's a wise choice. Yeah, the trouble with Twitter is it, it just wouldn't lend itself to arrow-by-arrow arrow coverage. You know, our sport's too quick. Yeah, 20 seconds. So you better be fast with the thumbs and then the tweets don't actually load that quick. So it's not good for every sport. Nope, but it's good for golf. Your, your point about golf is absolutely on. Who do you think is going to take the Masters? That's a good question. I am right now, so I got into a golf pool at with some of the guys from an, another company, from Hoyt. And I'm pretty upset about Paul Casey withdrawing like two minutes before his tee time. I had, hmm. basically there were six tiers of players. You had to pick one player from each tier. This would be a cool mm -hmm. thing to do in archery too. But well, that's why I, I brought picked, it up. Yeah, so I picked Paul Casey out of his tier and he withdrew literally like a minute before he, he, uh, he was on his way and he's just, I guess, decided he was injured and couldn't, couldn't play. So he totally killed my whole team, Paul Casey. I'll never forgive him, not ever. He's dead to you. Who? Paul Casey. Who? Exactly. All right. Well, do you see Vijay Singh is still playing? Yeah, and he's like, uh, I don't know, what is he? 60? Uh, yeah. Let me look him up. Ancient. <laughs> he's a, He loves to work out and stuff. He's 59, yeah. But he's a big workout guy. All into calisthenics, lifts some weights, if I'm not mistaken. 
it's pretty cool. You know, going back to that though, what would be really cool is say we go to Vegas and you break down, you enter a, and I know they've talked about gambling at Vegas before or doing some type of a Calcutta or things of that nature, but it would be pretty cool if someone could do a fan, you know, not a fantasy, but I guess it is like fantasy archery where, so you break down the, the, the archers into three to five tiers or whatever. Sure. You, you know, you, you pick one archer from each tier and then you just go off of finish and basically finish would be so lowest total. So say you're, you finish one, you get one point, you finish two, you get two points, et cetera. Lowest total wins, right? That would be a pretty cool way to do it. Now you could have, everybody could pick the same people, right? Just like on DraftKings or something like that, but it'd be interesting. You would add a little flair to archery. It'd get people behind their guy. I know that the employees at Lancaster do a little internal thing for the Lancaster Classic. So maybe we could have them lead the charge on that. So we'd have Lancaster Archery, Cam Media, and Lancaster Archery Sports Betting. (laughs) All as one big conglomerate. Well, who knows? We know one thing for sure. We'll never see that at WA because they're, they have an active, uh, I think it's, it comes from IOC. There is an active prohibition on uh, betting in the sport. So that's fine. And for, I totally understand it from a yeah. point of, right. If I could go and bet, if I was in the gold medal match and I could bet, and then you could easily throw the match. Right. So yeah, I get well. that, but this is a completely a side pot type thing. Yeah. I think that's perfectly legitimate, you know? Yeah. So not for the, not for the players, but for the fans. No, I I'd buy you in a Calcutta. And WA can't really do anything about that. Right. That's a separate thing. That's more of a state right. regulation thing. You right? can do that in a crowd. You could do that in a, in a, in a crowd of spectators, you know, right. that kind of thing. I'm not going to say I haven't seen people in the stands at a world cup event placing wagers on matches right that they're spectating so yes it might be a friendly wager it might be for bragging rights it might be for the change in your pocket that type of thing but it's you know something to spice it up a little bit you know what's interesting to me is that if tiger woods wins the masters it's going to cost the vegas sports books and historic loss there's a story I out. always hope that stuff happens because these they can afford it. One, two, golf is better when Tiger Woods wins. Just is. There's a uh, hundred to one odds originally. Now it's sixty to one odds, but still, you know, uh, if if he wins, you're looking at a six figure liability just for one of the legal sports books in Nevada. And uh, I think that that's going to be very interesting to see what happens. That's interesting. He's uh, uh, one under par. There are 18 players under par with the leader at minus four, the leaders, I should say. So he's not out of it. He's right there. I'm going to know for sure if Tiger's going to win on Sunday, I guess, right? And Yeah, one on Sunday. There is a, there's a tradition. Um, me and Jay Bars and John Johnson and a few other folks get together and watch the Masters, 
and snacks are prepared that are normally served at Augusta. Little steak sandwiches that Janet Bars makes. And little pimento cheese. All of that. And everybody wears their green jacket because um, John and Jay have actually played at Augusta and they have green jackets, but they didn't win them playing the masters, of course. Right. <laughs> but on Sunday, if John Johnston breaks out in the song, Tiger's going to win the masters, a little ditty that he came up with years ago, you can guarantee that Tiger will win the masters. Huh? Cause it's worked every time. Well, this would be, Following the Masters is like following Reading. Reading, you don't, everyone's not playing the same course every day like they are in right. golf. Right. But they are playing a certain section of the course, and you can look at weather conditions, kind of have an understanding of where that person might fall. So it's really cool because basically, you know, everyone in contention is tied or within a point or two of each other throughout the entirety of the weekend. So it, it's kind of like, you know, today I mentioned, okay, there's, there's 19 guys under par or 18 guys under par. Uh, and, and so many of them are right here, you know, after day one, okay, there's three guys clean and five guys at one down and 12 guys at two down, you know, and they're all pretty much still in contention. So it's yeah. just, uh, it's in, you know, Reading could be a very fun event to, break out into ranked tiers and have a selection. If only we had the kind of coverage that you can get for a golf event, right? If we had cameras on every target and, uh, uh, you know, all of that production quality in place, Reading actually would be quite the compelling event. Yeah, Reading would be a lot easier to cover if they had it as three separate courses and everyone shot, you know, like a field range. So pros shot targets one through 25 the first day and 26 through 50 the second day and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It would make coverage of that event a lot easier. And Reading is, in terms of an archery event, I think it's, it's probably the best one for, you know, it's uh, all aspects of archery. I really like it. There's, there's not any crazy requirements, not any crazy shots. It's just you have to be very good throughout the whole weekend and your equipment has to be perfect throughout the whole weekend and reading would be a very good event that's that's the masters too right you have to be playing very good throughout the whole weekend yeah the parallels are actually pretty compelling you're you're making yeah. a good case for it reading would be a good event to have better coverage of but i don't you know going back to what we talked about at the very start of the show we're talking about getting better coverage of archery but Right now, we can't even get a field large enough to host archery. We can't even get a field large enough to accommodate the demand. So I don't know what we're, you know, now we're trying to line up broadcasts and things of that nature. I mean, we got to get our ducks in a row and, and walk a little bit before we can run. And I'll say this. My brother sent me some screenshots the other day of bowling on TV. And he said, these guys... Are, my brother's an outside looking in guy. Yes. Not an archer, but very successful guy who played college sports, understands sports, understands what gets people going, understands people, and understands sales and marketing, really. And he pointed out, he said, hey, these, these bowlers, 
they're on ESPN. They are better put together than archers as a whole. They're all dressed nicer. Their shirts are nicer. They understand how to wear a tucked in shirt and a belt. They're not out on the course in flip flops and sweatpants and basketball shorts and things like that. Right. They're, they're doing everything they can to put together a presentable package so they can be on TV. He's like, is archery doing that? And it, no, we're not. Like, we are well, not doing that. You are in some countries. World archery does have uniform regulations, as you well know. Yeah, and world archery is covering it, but professional archery. Well, you know, the PA, the, the, back in the day, the PAA, the Professional Archers Association, had exactly the kind of things you're talking about. They had colored shirts as a requirement, no blue jeans. The shirt had to be tucked in. Um, you know what happens is people complain. Archers complain bitterly uh, if they have to uh, adhere to any kind of dress code. Yeah, and, so, and I've uh, made fun of the dress code before too because when it was instilled, the reasoning was that, oh, this is going to attract non-endemic sponsorship and we're going to like the quote was we're going to have sponsors from places like subway and stuff and we don't have any of that we don't have anything and i don't think we ever will right unless there's a major wholesale change we do have non-endemic sponsors in the world cup side so everything that's happening there maybe we should look at that and go hey you know what maybe these more presentable uniforms are good however i'll say like some of that stuff is slipping a little bit in terms of i don't think all i'm not a huge fan of the u.s uniform i don't think it's very professional looking uniform i think it looks a little bit bass fishing and i say that but bass fishing is doing a lot better in terms of no but i know your point archery yeah just there's there's improvements to be made Anywhere and everywhere, World Archery has done a lot of that. They have instilled a package that is presentable. I think what I'm my biggest gripe is it comes back to us as professionals. Like we don't we don't make ourselves very presentable. Which goes right back into the genesis. The original genesis of the PAA back in the '60s was to create exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. So maybe once again, it'll come from the professional roots, and you guys will start. Ship, shaping up your own ship no uh, we won't like no that's not happening <laughs> so the other thing that happened this week is the ioc has come up with the competition schedule for paris 2024 and which is coming a lot sooner than we think and uh, we're going to have archery starting out one day before the official start of the games so that raises the question steve uh does that mean that if you shoot an Olympic record at the ranking round, is it going to count? And the definitive answer is yes. Because in spite of the fact that it happens before the uh, opening ceremony itself, uh, it is considered part of the Olympic program. And I have it from the highest levels at World Archery that the qualifying round on Thursday, uh, they're calling it the qualifying round at WA. Normally it's called the ranking round. Um is going to happen Thursday, the 25th of July of 2024, and it will count for Olympic records. So it would be incredibly it. stupid if it didn't, but it would be a typical something that would happen. It has in happened sport. in the past. It's happened. Yeah, in the and past. that's that's right. It happened with the women, right? Right. Dumb. It's just dumb. Well, and they know that, and that's why they've fixed it. 
Opening ceremony in Paris is going to take place on the River Seine in the center of the city and not in a stadium. And the archery venue is right next to the river. So you know what this means? This means it's going to be really easy for archers to go to the opening ceremony at the games because normally it's really difficult and uh, this is going to be different. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. I don't, would you go, if you were at the games, well, that's just two ways. If it was your first Olympics, would you go to the opening ceremony, assuming you had to shoot a head to head match the next morning? And if it was your second games, would you go to the opening ceremony under the same conditions? Uh, me personally, not having gone to the Olympic Games, I, I think it would be hard to say, but I've been to the World Games and I chose not to go to the physical opening ceremony. Neither did any of the rest of the U.S. team because we had to shoot early the next morning and we chose to forego going to the ceremony to preserve our ability to compete. Now, I will tell you that we did watch it on TV and I would argue, having been to some Olympic opening ceremonies as a uh, participant in, in the ceremonies themselves or as a spectator, that you actually get to see more watching it on TV than you do certainly as an Olympic athlete because the Olympic athletes are waiting outside the stadium most of the time Yeah, for the vast majority of the event. They're outside. They're, their only real moment is when they march in. And so my personal perspective on it the game comes first. The ceremony is is uh, frosting on the cake. But at the end of the day, you're there to compete. And so my personal choice would be to forego it. I would go if it was my first one. Yeah. I might even go if it was my second one. I don't know. It's kind of the, the same uh, thought process where I would do nothing different than if it were a normal day. And if I said, hey, you're going to be back and you're going to be in bed by 11 o'clock p.m. All right, cool. Probably just gonna go do it because that's normal, right? I want to yeah. treat everything as normal. But I didn't get back to my hotel until three in the morning at the Sydney opening ceremony, and I recall not getting back to my hotel until two in the morning at the Barcelona opening ceremony. Those are the the two that stand out in my mind as the, you know, the kind of the normal opening ceremony after getting out of there is really difficult. Yeah, I'll, I'll point out also in the uh, U.S. Olympic festivals that I've shot, I never went to the opening ceremonies for the same reason. Um, and you know, the goal of those events was to get you into an Olympic sized event. You know, we, it wasn't the size of the Olympics by no means, but it was certainly, you know, a big event by U S standards, 3,500 athletes. And, uh, didn't go to either of those opening ceremonies. The only opening ceremony I've ever gone to as an athlete was for the Oh, four world field. And that was because it just happened to fit in everybody's schedule in a way that was not disruptive. I went to the World Games opening ceremony in Colombia, and you're right, you're outside the arena most of the time, but you know what, I was chumming it up with the people on the streets, fam. Yeah. So it was all good. And then I typically skip opening ceremonies at all the other events, you know, like the World Championship type of stuff. I went to one in Italy because it was 200 yards from the hotel. Yeah, so it was convenient for you to be able to do it. Yeah, and it was a waste of time. <laughs> it, not a waste of time. It's cool to see it, but there was, I didn't even know what was happening most of the time, right? You're there and people are speaking Italian. Occasionally someone speaks English and it's just a, they trot you in and it, it was mostly archery people. There's not really anyone there watching 
for anything. I did go to the one in Ireland too, now that I think about it. And that one was much the same way, pretty quick. So it's a privilege to be able to represent our country at these events. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, I'm really there, you know, in the past uh, to compete. And so, you know, I, I also have the strange quirk of never having done any tourism around any of the six Olympic games that I've worked. <laughs> I just did the job and got out. And that's right. arguably, arguably that's a mistake. I should have, I should have treated that differently, but yeah. yeah, I just, you know, focus is what it is when you're there. And uh, I, I don't regret not having gone to those opening ceremonies, but I will say that uh, it would be nice if opening ceremonies could be done with a buffer day afterward. Would be so nice. Kind of thing. But uh, as I said, you treat, I like to treat everything as if it's a completely normal day, right? Well, what am I doing at home if I'm just training or a regular tournament or anything of that nature? So like we had a lady from KSL, one of the major news outlets here in Salt Lake City. When we had the World Cup here, she came and interviewed me. And she's like, so are you guys going to be like training super hard and like trying – super hard and you know she asked if we were going to be basically spending a ton of extra time training and i explained it to her i'm like well there's really only so much you can do right in a day and no we're not going to do it any different than we do on another day like we've had success as a team we've all had success as individuals so we're not going to do anything different than we normally would just because the world cup is here in my hometown and she couldn't really fathom that. And she, she kept kind of like prodding about this very same thing. And I was like, well, I don't know. We're like, we're going golfing tonight. So, yeah. <laughs> so and she wrote the article and made it seem as if like we were screwing around playing golf and didn't care. And I'm like, that, come on, lady, you know? Yeah. Well, you got to be careful with the reporters. You know, that's yeah, they're, they're looking for, a, I don't know. They're looking for, a, the, for the story. They're looking for a headline. They're looking for clickbait. You know? Yeah. When I was a high school athlete, and I was a really good high school athlete, you get to know a lot of the local reporters. And you know kind of what they're going to write about you and say about you. And then I went to college, and I saw that that changes a little bit. They're, they're kind of out to get you. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had one in when I was playing basketball in college who was, you know, he was, he was a gotcha type guy. He was – if we weren't having the best of – a stretch he was looking for dirt as to why did something happen within the team stuff like that like really dumb stuff anyhow maybe it was the same with this lady she was out i don't know i don't know what story she was trying to paint but she really wanted me to say like yeah we're like really grinding hard like we're shooting 25 hours a day to prepare for this it people who are trying to make to your us. people who are trying to make your story interesting are not necessarily always looking out for your best interests true i should have recognized what was up here and i should have been like oh yeah lady we're grinding super hard and we are training unbelievably hard for this event and just left it at that you know she yeah. probably covers a lot of the local u.s ski team athletes and sure maybe they maybe they say stuff like that i don't know i just spoke as i always do and i said what i felt well and you have to be careful these days you know um even even social media bloggers will twist stories to try to make them more interesting, you know? 
There, there used to be media training offered um, by the USOC if you're going on an international event. I, I think they still do that. And, um, you know, they do give you guidelines, stuff like don't wear your sunglasses while you're being interviewed, but also stuff like, you know, what to say and what not to say and how not to dig yourself a hole. And uh, I think that that is a wise thing for them to give to athletes, uh, you know, who are headed to this kind of thing in the context of what some, not all, but some media people are really there for. And some athletes are not super outspoken they're more internalized so they really struggle to like even convey anything that the media can use and it's you can see it on tv sometimes it's kind of painful to watch and then you have some that are more natural at actually talking to people or talking on camera um and then you have others who you know like maybe my training would have been don't dig yourself a hole or watch out for you know this watch out for them trying to go a certain direction and you know, either, I don't know. It's not like the lady got me on anything or whatever, but. This no, whole... but it's, it certainly is a lesson to learn or to keep in mind when you're dealing with the media as an athlete, for those of you listening who, you know, you're going to an event in the future and you get yourself interviewed, keep in mind, they're there to tell an interesting story, not necessarily to help you. I'm not even remembering what this segment started out as or how we got it down this road, but. I don't know. I listened to an archery podcast last week and I was like, man, I like, I, I totally don't care about this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there's probably a lot of people listening to this very segment going, I don't care about your media training. Steve. You might be right. You might be right. I've been drinking a lot of green tea lately. How so? I just, I don't Kinda. know. I, uh, matcha. Iced matcha. Or hot? No. Hot. Well, not hot because you don't drink green tea actually hot, right? It's more of a, say, 175 degrees, something like that. So I, I, I have this pretty hot to me. I have this box of matcha. Well, I don't drink it at that temperature. That's what you brew it at. I have this box of matcha that I got in Kyoto a couple of years ago, and um, I had it in my cupboard and I forgot about it. And I opened it up, and it's you know it's got the oxygen proof deal, so it's still fresh. And I've just been drinking all of it this week. It's uh, uh, two, two things. One, I, I actually feel pretty good. Two, I don't get to sleep till three in the morning. You know, I used to go to a Japanese steakhouse in Boise, Idaho on Fairview Avenue called Kyoto. It was great. And I guess that's a perfect place to stop, right? <laughs> we'll just use that. We'll use that. That's perfect. Yeah. It was great. It was great. I, every, out of everything you took, I picked up Kyoto and just went with that. 